0: Welcome to HRI's Next in Health podcast. I'm Trina Sederos and I lead PwC's Health Research Institute. I'm also a management consultant at PwC, working with pharmaceutical companies on vaccines, mRNA, MAPs, and other drug products.
1: And I'm Igor Belakronitsky, and I'm a principal with PwC Strategy End, and I help the leading health organizations with their strategies and operating models. And Trina, it's great to be speaking with you today. And of course, as healthcare people will look at everything through the healthcare lens. And I was walking around the other day and it struck me how, as you walk down the street, you can't always tell what business or what establishment is what until you read the sign or you look inside. But you can always tell a barbershop from pretty far away because it's got that striped pole out front. And that of course has a healthcare connection. And we usually talk about the future of healthcare, but I think it is useful sometimes to look at it through the lens of the past. And the reason we have that poll in front of the barber shops is because retail health is not a new phenomenon. It is in fact very old. And a lot of healthcare used to be done by the barber surgeons and they performed a number of services in their establishment. And one of the services was that you would come in and they'd give you a stick to hold, and they'd open up your vein, and some blood would drain out into a pot because they had determined that what was ailing you was an imbalance in the bodily humors, and you had too much blood, and so the blood needed to be drained. And so the barber surgeons who were licensed to perform this procedure would display their licensure and the sign that they could perform this procedure. And since not a lot of people were literate, instead of having to spell it out that we do bloodletting. They would just hang out that pole with some bloody bandages on it. And that told you that that was a barber surgeon. You can come in and have your bloodlet and have some teeth pulled and have some other basic medical procedures performed. But bloodletting was chief among them.
0: That's right. And bloodletting, I think, is one of the most interesting treatments To even take a look at because it just persisted for so long. It went on for thousands of years. There are ancient Greek phases with bloodletting depicted on them. You can find it all around the world. You can find bloodletting having been done in China for hundreds and hundreds of years. An enormous range of cultures did bloodletting and it arose kind of independently. So this isn't something that necessarily spread through trade or word of mouth. It just came up independently. And I think that's one of the more fascinating aspects of it. But I think the other piece that really surprises me is that bloodletting persisted in the United States all the way into the beginning of the 20th century. So this isn't something that was done, you know, way back in olden times. There are probably Americans who remember it still alive today very old Americans, but nevertheless. And I think that is another surprising piece of it. And so, like you said, Igor, I think we can learn something from bloodletting about our own healthcare system. And then also, I think to some extent about some of the therapeutics that have become popular in the pandemic. So I think we can chew that around a little bit in this episode.
1: That's right. And I think one of the interesting questions it poses is how do we decide what is effective and what is not? Because here you have it, something that persists for a long, long time, even though it is not medically effective and it is not indicated for I don't believe any condition. And yet it persists because perhaps it feels like it should work and perhaps for a subset of people at some point it worked. And so there was perhaps anecdotal evidence that it worked or it was passed on from one barber surgeon to another as part of their training and they ever had doubt to question it. There are also things like the placebo effect. Where doing something is better than doing nothing for that given patient because they feel like something is being done and they appreciate it. The other complicating factor is that we can't necessarily dismiss every traditional treatment as ineffective. So one other thing that you would commonly be prescribed and receive would be leeches. And leeches, which seem like this medieval weird treatment actually can be clinically effective for a set of conditions and are still prescribed and still used and kind of came back into fashion because their effectiveness has been demonstrated through trials and tests. And so we can't necessarily throw everything out of the window that's old and replace it with something that's new we do have to distinguish based on, you know, whether it's effective or not. And we have good mechanisms. We have the scientific method to determine effectiveness, but that is not necessarily something that everyone relies on as they make decisions.
0: Yeah, actually, that's a really good point. And it makes me think about a French doctor who in the 19th century had the idea of trying to figure out whether bloodletting worked for pneumonia. So at the time, if you had pneumonia, you would Have bloodletting—that was just a typical treatment, and it was considered effective. I mean, it was all over in France, in Europe, in the United States. You got pneumonia, you got bloodlet. So this French doctor decided to take a look and looked at what happened to patients who had bloodletting with pneumonia. What happened if they didn't have bloodletting? And he found that there was no effect. It was not helpful for pneumonia. Published these results, so evidence there that it doesn't work, and it was published. And you would think like, okay, well, that would be the end of bloodletting for pneumonia. Here he shows it pretty clearly that it's not effective. Did it end bloodletting for pneumonia? No, it did not. In the United States, actually, I was looking at some charts made by some followers of this French doctor in the United States, in Boston, bloodletting for pneumonia actually went up in their hospital after the publication of this. So even, I think, testing and clinical trials and evidence, doesn't always lead to a change in practice very quickly overnight. And so I think that's one interesting aspect of bloodletting is that it took a long time to kind of get phased out, even as it became clearer and clearer that it wasn't very useful for what it was being used for, which was almost everything. I have an interesting story. This is courtesy of Dr. Jeremy Green at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, Department of History of Medicine. And I'm taking a class there. And he recounted this amazing story about George Washington. So George Washington died... About a day and a half after falling sick with fever, chills, a sore throat, sore enough that he had a hard time swallowing. And so the first thing he did in the middle of the night when he was feeling so sick was he called his wife, Martha, and said, bring the overseer of my estate. He was at Mount Vernon. He was 67 years old, so he was retired from being president. And so the overseer came, took blood from him. He said, tell the overseer to come bloodlet me. So that happened in the middle of the night. He still felt sick in the morning. His personal doctor comes, takes 40 ounces of blood, okay? Does another bloodletting. Still feels sick. He puts a preparation of dried beetles on George Washington's neck. Didn't help. (laughs) Unsurprisingly, didn't help. Then he called for another doctor. So another doctor comes. The new doctor takes another 40 ounces. So that's 80 plus ounces, right? So the first 40 plus another 40 plus whatever happened overnight from the overseer. We don't get a good idea of how much that overseer took. He still feels bad. Another doctor comes. This is the third doctor. He takes another 32 ounces from George Washington. It's the afternoon. So within 12 hours, he's lost more than 110 ounces of blood. Another doctor comes. They give him mercury and tartar by rectum. He doesn't feel well from that. And he passes away at 10 o'clock that night, having lost somewhere around half of the volume of blood in his body. And so you would think that this kind of experience was common, right? So this was not an unusual. People would get sick, they would get bloodletting, they would pass away. And you would think this kind of experience over and over would be proof that, hey, it doesn't really work. Yet it did not lead to the end of bloodletting People thought that it actually helped him a little bit in the middle of the day. He perked up a little bit, was able to review his will, then died a few hours later. And so it's easy to see how little changes in someone's affect, changes in the course of their disease, which are common in any disease, that any uptick is attributed to the treatment and any downturn is kind of like nature would have happened anyway, he would have died anyway. And so I think that's another lesson for us in that it's very difficult in the time to Sort of understand what the effect of a treatment is vis-a-vis what's happening in the body and what would have happened otherwise, and that's why we need clinical trials to sort that out because our gut check is often wrong. I mean, with bloodletting was wrong for thousands of years.
1: That's right, and the confirmation bias is very strong. And for something that becomes kind of part of the common belief, to debunk it, to toss it out to say, no, actually, this thing I've been doing for a long time, it's ineffective. It costs a lot of people their reputations. And yes, the research trials, the randomized control trials help a lot. But even there, there are people who have found room to cheat. And we are in the middle of a replication crisis. And there are a lot of findings that don't replicate because people do want to publish. People do want to make advances. People also want to confirm their prior convictions and will find the data and massage the data and torture the data until it says what they wanted to say. And so part of finding a way to continue to make advances is figuring out how to design the right trials, how to have the right methodologies, but also to think about us as humans and what biases and limitations we have. We are, you know, very responsive to placebos. The placebo effect is very strong. The placebo effect when they tell you that it's a brand name medication versus generic is even stronger. The placebo effect that comes with a bunch of side effects is stronger yet because, oh, I'm feeling bad. I'm experiencing the side effects. This must be the real thing. I'm really like paying the price for this medication. So I'm working hard. Therefore, you know, it must be effective. And what's often missing from these experiments from these trials is kind of the real-time feedback and the scale to get the effect. And so you brought up a French scientist and doctor, so I'll, I'll bring up one of my own. So Ambrose Paré, I think it was 16th century barber surgeon, and he did battlefield medicine, among other things. He did obstetrics and a lot of other, worked in a lot of other areas, but his thing was battlefield medicine. And that is a remarkable area of medicine because it sees some of the greatest innovation despite all the constraints or perhaps because of all the constraints that you have out in the field. But you have this enormous scale on which you're practicing. And so you can start seeing fairly quickly what works and what doesn't. And so he practiced at the time when battlefield wounds were cauterized. Usually it was hot oil, which was not great. It was not a great practice. And one night the battle was so pitched and there are so many wounded that it ran out of hot oil. And so he concocted some sort of an ointment that was not nearly as damaging to the person, but actually had an antiseptic effect. And he expected that, you know, everybody that he treated with this ointment wasn't going to recover, but he saw the opposite. He saw that people who were treated with hot oil were running a fever and were in really bad shape. And people who were treated with the ointment that he invented were doing much better. And so he had a real-life experiment in front of him. And so he switched and started using the ointment. He started using ligatures. He invented or reinvented many things in healthcare get reinvented. He reinvented the ligature, the field dressings, and he was really one of the innovators and saved many lives in the battlefield because there, again, he could test right away and see the real-world feedback impact of these innovations did people recover or not were they in more pain or less pain did they get infected or not so one of the kind of the battlefield medicine pioneers that we also get ambulance services from the battlefield medicine the concept of triage the use of anesthetics a lot of that comes from just wherever you have a lot of carnage and blood and you have that large scale you can get pretty amazing effects from some of these innovations
0: I wonder how long it took for Paré's innovations to soak into the, first of all, the way that battlefield medicine was practiced, but then also just into the larger world of medicine. I wonder how long it took. And of course, at that time, you know, it was a much different time and it's not easy to disseminate information and, you know, it's much more fragmented overall in Europe. But I wonder how long it took, because I think this brings up a good point about practices that don't work, that persist. And then how long does it take for practices that do work to sort of become the new standard of care? And I think medicine tends to change. We tend to think of it as changing pretty slowly in general. And in some ways, that's a good thing. You don't want the sort of herky-jerky, completely reactive, everything changes every single day based on some new study. Although in COVID, we're kind of seeing that a little bit. But I wonder how long it took because it takes a while. And sometimes the best practices aren't adopted right away and the bad ones are not ditched quickly enough.
1: That's right. Well, in his case, he knew the king. So he was in a good position to disseminate and make mandatory some of his innovations. But yes, it can take a long, long time. There's a tremendous article by Atul Gawande where he takes and he actually gave this as a speech at our 180 health forum. It takes two healthcare innovations, the disinfection of the operating room. And the use of ether and contrasts them because disinfecting the operating room, I think using carbolic acid at the time, took years and years to introduce and convince the surgeons to wash their hands and treat the operating room kind of like a laboratory. But the use of ether from, I think, the first use of it, I think by a dentist to it being widespread across the United States and Europe took several months. No, it was the same time period, but one spread like wildfire. And the other one was kind of like pulling teeth. And again, it was less of a burden of proof, clinical evidence, sample size, methodological issues, and much more about human resistance versus human kind of buy-in and alignment and biases.
0: It's always the case that cultural situations, politics, economics, all these things play a role in how whether pieces of innovation are accelerated or held back. And it's always interesting. Actually, that's the work of the history of medicine is to sort of tease all that apart and try to figure out why did ether fly off the shelves essentially? And I mean, it's not hard to see why, because if you are going to have surgery without a potent painkiller or way to escape the horror of it, you know, if someone offers you that option and it feels like it's fairly safe, you're going to take it. And so it's not surprising that it became completely common very quickly. The other way of avoiding the pain of surgery was mesmerism at the time, and mesmerism kind of competed with these therapeutic agents as anesthesia, and there's a really interesting book about why it sort of fell out of favor, how it didn't make it, but you could imagine almost it winning out in ether and all these sort of being delayed, but they won out for a whole range of reasons. So another interesting topic for sure, unfortunately, uh, or fortunately, I should say, it did get adopted quickly. So lots That's of people amazing. are scared. Yeah, I know. We should have a bring mesmerism back.
1: <laughs> well, it is, again brings us back to how everything's in the head and how big of a difference it makes, what mindset you're in. And for some of these changes, you know, sometimes it takes generations to change over. We think about kind of the history of medicine and the, the ancient Greeks have set the initial standards and not on the baseline for this, but then it was the Islamic scholars that examined it critically and were free to question it and said, hey, wait a minute, this makes sense, but these other bits don't make any sense. And we need to re examine them. I don't think you really understand how a human body functions, how what the major systems are. And that's when you saw some of the first hospitals being set up with various academic departments. And so that was kind of the next big leap in healthcare. And then eventually it made its way back to Europe was sort of a mixed success. But yeah, sometimes it's a huge changeover that's required before you can make a big step forward.
0: Yeah, if we just think about the pandemic right now, just to sum it all up, We've had this real flurry of therapeutics tried over a very short period of time and clinical trials set up to try to quickly figure out which work, which don't, which help COVID patients, which don't, that are in the hospital and such. And it's been a really miraculously quick piece. But we see some of these therapeutics persist for political reasons in a lot of ways, like ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, and these therapeutics that people are still using, believing that they work. I think all of this is just a reminder that it is difficult for people to tease out what works just based on their intuition and that some things can just be accelerated due to politics and culture and and things like that. And that we shouldn't be surprised by that because that's the story of medicine all the way back to ancient Greece and thousands of years back.
1: Well, Trina, I think this is a fascinating look back and lots of lessons learned about human behavior and human psychology and designing and rolling out effective new treatments and how it takes the clinical evidence, but also the behavioral science approaches to help us address our biases and be educated and be smarter shoppers and help ourselves and our families be healthy and take care of each other.
0: Yeah, I would agree.
1: For more on these topics and other health industry insights driven by policy, innovation, and care delivery changes, please visit our website at pwc.com forward slash HRI. Until next time, this has been Next in Health.
0: This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved.